The readings that we heard tonight don't seem to have a whole lot in common. From the Hebrew Bible, we heard the Passover story. From the New Testament, we heard the institution of the Lord's Supper. And from the Gospels, we heard about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But there's one theme that kind of floats beneath the surface in all three, and that is the idea of sacrifice. So I thought tonight we might think a little bit together about what sacrifice is and why it keeps bubbling up throughout Scripture. And just as a warning, this is going to be a little denser than usual, but I figured if you came to church on a Thursday night, you're probably feeling up for it. So the idea of sacrifice shows up all through the Hebrew Bible. You can probably think of a lot of ideas just off the top of your head. Abraham being told to sacrifice Isaac, and then God providing a ram instead. The dispute between Cain and Abel over who has the better sacrifice to offer God. Exodus and Leviticus are full of images of sacrifice, how to do it, why it matters. And earlier tonight, we heard the famous Passover story, which is all about sacrifice. So sacrifice is a big theme in the Hebrew Bible, but there's not a system for how it works. The authors of the text all have different ideas about what to sacrifice, how to sacrifice it, and why you should sacrifice it in the first place. But there are a few things that they have in common. One is the belief that this offering of something to God, some form of life or wealth usually, restores your relationship with God. It frees people from guilt, it creates trust, it removes the barrier between the people and God. A second theme is that sacrifice isn't just something you do for yourself, it's something you do for a large group of people. The Passover story, it's not just each family, it's the entire nation that's saved in this act of sacrifice. And a third is that after you sacrifice the thing, especially if it's an animal, You're supposed to eat it as a sign of your newly reconciled relationship with God and your neighbors. So you affirm the covenant. So in the worldview of the Hebrew Bible, sacrifice keeps catastrophe away, affects the lives of many people, and affirms the prior covenant, often with some kind of meal. And you can already see where this is going. So for many of us, the idea that sacrificing something appeases God strikes us as, at best, theologically odd, and at worst, morally reprehensible. And we have good reasons for feeling that way. Part of the difficulty with the language of sacrifice is that we tend to think about it in terms of punishment. God is mad at us because of our sins, so let's try to get him, it's always a him in this kind of thinking, to calm down. One of our neighboring churches has a big sign up right now that reads in capital letters, His pain, our gain. The implication clearly is that God has to get the wrath out somehow, inflict a certain amount of pain on something, so Jesus mans up and takes one for the team. Calling this kind of thinking misguided is excessively charitable. So it's tempting to just dump the language of sacrifice altogether, but we can't just dump it without dumping a whole bunch of important scripture with it. Earlier tonight, for example, we heard St. Paul's account of the Last Supper which is actually the oldest account of Jesus' words that we have in the Bible. And it's clear when you read that account of the Last Supper, we're somehow dealing with sacrificial imagery. When Jesus gathers his disciples for a Passover meal and says that this meal is his body and blood intended for a new covenant, clearly we're dealing with sacrifice here. So as I mentioned earlier, part of what the language of sacrifice does 
is emphasized as an intervention that turns away some kind of catastrophe. And part of where we tend to go wrong in thinking about sacrifice is thinking that this catastrophe comes from God. We'll give God the sacrifice and then God won't smite us. And if that's true, then what we need to be saved from is God. But what we often fail to see is that the catastrophe doesn't come from God, it comes from us. The catastrophe that we need to be saved from is not some action of God that's dropped in as a kind of punishment from outside of creation. It's a consequence that comes from our own actions. If you want a tangible way of thinking about this, think about climate change for a second. It's almost a foregone conclusion at this point that our grandkids or kids or even some of us will live in a world that has become catastrophically hellish. There are the primary effects, more drought, more hurricanes, more floods, and then all the secondary effects, more famine, more, more wars, more displacement, more refugees. Is that a punishment for sin? No. But is it a consequence of sin? Well, yeah. This punishment versus consequences thing might just feel like a semantic difference, but here's why it actually matters. Because when Jesus uses sacrificial language to describe his death, when he uses that Passover imagery, he's suggesting that his death is about bearing the consequences of sin. Because we live in a world where people are guided by greed and avarice and looking out for themselves no matter what, people end up crucified. Remember, it's not God who crucifies Jesus, it's people who crucify Jesus. So when we talk about Jesus bearing our sins, what we're saying is not that it's Jesus who's punished for them in our place. What we're saying is that it's Jesus who bears the consequences of them, even though he hasn't created them. And by offering himself in this way, bearing the consequences of sin, even though he hasn't created them, Jesus creates a new way for us to be in relationship with God. So one of the things you notice when you read the Hebrew Bible is that the way they talk about sacrifice changes over time. In the prophets, in the Psalms, the idea of sacrifice moves away from sacrificing things, goats, crops, and toward offering your obedience to God. The most perfect gift you can offer God is your heart, your soul, your life. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel advises, quote, obedience is better than sacrifice. In one of the Psalms, which we usually don't think of as being funny, God ironically declares, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Why do you keep sending me these things? So in offering himself as a sacrifice, Christ is completing a life lived in perfect harmony and alignment with the character of God. So by bearing the consequences of sin, Jesus opens up a new possibility, a new way of being, a new way for us to be in relationship with God. The limits that keep us from living justly and mercifully as God intends have been broken down. It's almost like Jesus breaks down the wall that we see life through, and suddenly we see a whole new horizon for what it means to be in relationship with God. So on Sunday, when we talked about Jesus' death, I talked about it mostly as showing us something about God that was already true. This thing has always been true, but now we just see it more clearly. It kind of comes into focus better for us. And that sermon wasn't wrong, but it was only half true. The idea of sacrifice is getting at something rather different. It's getting at the other half of that. It's saying that Jesus' passion, his sacrifice, 
doesn't just show us something or reveal something to us that's always been true. It actually does something. One of the famous prayers from the Book of Common Prayer says it this way, that in Jesus Christ, God, quote, wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature. God doesn't just kind of top off what's already there, but there's a new creation in all of us. And this brings us back around full circle to the Last Supper. Because Christ's sacrifice is not the kind of thing where you can stand back at a distance and say, well, isn't that nice in theory? It's something that we participate in whenever we gather together around this table. Christ changes what it means to be human. So when we gather around this table and receive the body of Christ, we don't just receive a piece of bread. We receive the new humanity that Jesus has created for us to inhabit. The new humanity, the new obedience, the new sacrifice that we see in Jesus' life is now yours. God gives you Jesus' new humanity and transforms your life. That's what it means for the body of Christ to be given for you. So now that I've thrown about a dozen thoughts at you, how do we tie this all up in some sensible way? Well, whenever we gather around this table, we are the truest versions of ourselves. Because when we are joined to the body of Christ, we become even more wonderfully restored. So take, eat, and become what God says you already are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.